Hello, you're listening to Just Screen It, Case Studies in Creative Distribution. I am your host, Colin Stryker, and I am not an expert in creative or self-distribution. I'm an independent filmmaker working towards making my first narrative feature, uh, a horror film entitled The Grove. Um, so as I've been contemplating my own eventual distribution strategy, I've become sort of fascinated with the notion of self-distribution, but I've found that it's really hard with all the information that's out there to uh, really get a good idea of how it's worked for people. So I decided to start this podcast to help capture some of the experiences of those who have already been through it, uh, whether successful or otherwise, and from those experiences, help both listeners and myself better understand this really complex, crazy landscape of independent film distribution today. So each week, I'll be bringing on a filmmaker who has self-distributed or used creative or non-traditional methods to distribute their film. Uh, my hope is that future filmmakers can take the knowledge gleaned from this show and use it to make their own decisions on how to best distribute their films. So today, I'm really excited to bring you my conversation with Dan Mervish. Many of you may know Dan as one of the co-founders of the Slamdance Film Festival, founded in 1995, uh, sort of as an alternative to Sundance for first-time filmmakers. Uh, Dan's first feature was entirely self-distributed, but since then, Dan has made several more films, including his most recent 18 and a Half, uh, a thriller comedy about a White House transcriber who stumbles upon the missing 18 and a half minutes of tape from the Nixon-Watergate affair, Wow, uh, which she tries to leak to a reporter. Uh, it's a fun, original, very well-crafted, very well-acted film, uh, definitely worth checking out. Uh, in any case, while Dan has found distribution for most of his films, as he points out in the interview, the line between self-distribution and traditional distribution isn't always so clear-cut. Dan brings a wealth of experience to the table and has some great things to say about how things work uh, both in and out of the industry, uh, and also about his own personal experiences promoting his films in both theatrical and ancillary markets. There's a lot to unpack here, so without further ado, I will bring you my interview with Dan Mervish. Yeah, hey, uh, Colin, thanks for having me on, and uh, uh, greetings to everyone out there in podcast land. Um, yeah, I'm Dan Mervish, and I, like most people, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, went to college in St. Louis, uh, didn't go to a school that had much of a film program at the time, um, uh, but I did take a Super 8 class that I liked, then I went out, did some summer classes at UCLA, learned 60 millimeter cinematography, and then, you know, kind of did as much as I could with film uh, in college. And then I worked for a couple of years in Washington, D.C. as a speechwriter for uh, Senator Tom Harkin. Um, but even with that, we did a lot of speeches like in the recording video recording studio in the basement of the Capitol. And so I was hanging out with the guys in the booth there a lot. And then after a couple of years, I thought, well, it's now's the time to apply to film school. Uh, applied to five places and I got into only one, which was USC. And so I went there for the graduate production program. And, and then the real thing that kind of turned me more specifically to making my own indie features was I spent a summer after my first year working on a uh, bad kickboxing movie in the Philippines. And uh, <laughs> but I learned a lot you know, from that experience and, and really everything from, from beginning to end on, on how to make a movie. And, um, and then for my thesis film at USC, I was the first one there to do a full feature. So I did a film called the Omaha, the movie and, um, you know, went back to Omaha 
and uh, had written. This is, I'm sorry. This is about uh, what? When, when are we talking here? Yeah, uh, early '90s. So early like '90s. Okay. Is October '93 is when we shot the film. Yeah. So this is kind and of then, you know kind of a different landscape for film back then than it is now in a lot of ways. Well, yeah. Although what's strange is or remarkable is is how little has changed um, <laughs> okay you know you couldn't shoot digital no one would that wasn't even a thing at that point um yeah. so the choice was either 60 millimeter or 35 millimeter and so if you know you had to raise you know some real money with that you couldn't just experiment and shoot a film on an iphone you know yeah, yeah. Which you can now but but once the film was finished if you could finish it um, then the landscape was pretty much the same as it is now, uh, uh, for better and for worse, and mostly for worse. Um, and, you know, it was, if you got into Sundance, you would get distribution. I had distributors tell me point blank that, hey, we love the film. If it gets into Sundance, we'll pick it up. If it doesn't, nah, you know, forget about it, kid. Yeah. Um, and honestly, that hasn't changed that much. Um, so, you know, so then along with a couple other filmmakers, we started the Slamdance Film Festival. That's now been going on for, you know, 29 years or so. But with that film, Omaha, the movie, um, you know, I teamed up with my uh, producing partner, Dana Altman, um, who is Robert Altman's grandson, by the way. And we wound up, um, we did get one or two distribution offers, uh, but we turned them down because they weren't great. And so we decided to do self-distribution. And this was really informed a lot by the guys who did uh my brother's keeper um bruce sanofsky and his partner um bruce is no longer with us uh, his, uh partner i forget his yeah i can't his remember name. either i haven't those names yeah, haven't he, crossed my still, brain he's still, for, yeah, yeah he's still around and still making okay. films. anyway the yeah. point was they had about a year earlier had gotten a lot of attention for doing self-distribution with mm -hmm. uh, my brother's keeper I met Bruce. He was a juror at a film festival and um, really gave gave me some great advice. And more importantly, he gave me the secret list of exhibitors, oh. which really was the secret at the time. It was like, don't give this to anyone. And um, and with that in hand, we Dana and I did our own self-distribution with Omaha the movie. Um, and there had been a couple, you know, I mean, we weren't obviously we weren't the first ones to have done it. And there were other people that had used kind of a similar model. Um, Federal Hill in uh, Rhode Island and um, Slacker in, yep. um, you know, R Richard Linkletter. Yep. You know, what he did was he self-distributed in in his local town in, in Austin. And then when it did very well there, they got a lot of national attention. Mm -hmm. And that's when he got a bigger distributor. So that was kind of the strategy we were starting with was let's just, you know, open in Omaha. And, yeah. Um, and in the Midwest and and kind of work our way out from there. And along the way, we'll contact distributors and tell them how great we're doing. And um, and they'll swoop in and elevate us and, and we won't have to do the work, hard work ourselves anymore. Well, it didn't quite happen that way. Like yeah. we, basically we did we did pretty well in Omaha and and we did start playing in, in Lincoln and Des Moines and you know Sioux Falls and Kansas City. You know, we did kind of work our way up. And we were contacting distributors, but the, the distributors would, you know, they always look for an excuse to say no. So they would be like, oh, you've done well in your hometown. Great. You just blew our biggest market. 
like, what? No, that proves wow. that we can do well. Right. Yeah. So was, you can't win with these guys. They're like, oh, you got a great box office number. Ah, that's too bad. Now yeah. everyone's seen your film. Can I um, can I just stop you so, for just a second, yeah, if I please, could? Yeah. Um, can you give us an idea of, of what Omaha was as a film? What was it about? What oh, kind yeah, of yeah, genre yeah. was it? That it's, kind of thing. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a goofy road trip comedy about uh-huh. a young man from Nebraska who returns and from a trip abroad to confront not just his peculiar family and friends, but also a roving gang of Iowa kickboxers and Colombian jewel thieves who chase him across the state to go uh-huh. to um, Carhenge, an exact replica of Stonehenge built out of old American cars in western Nebraska. Oh, so, uh, and there's a little bit of minor documentary like interviews with the mayor and the governor. Uh-huh. Um, the real mayor and the real governor along the way. But it's it's basically a goofy 20-something road comedy. Um, and uh, so nothing super earth-shattering, but it looked great. We shot it on 35 millimeter, wow. um, all, lo- all local cast, so no famous people in it, really. And uh, except, you know, well-known locally, but, you know, in right. Nebraska. <laughs> <laughs> right. And and, a, and and can you talk a little bit about uh, about the budget at all? Yeah, we it was under 100,000. Trying to think it was like 87,000 or something like okay. that. Probably a lot of that was just stock and developing, I imagine. Yeah. 35. Yeah. It is. It is. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the the camera we got for free from Panavision, but yeah, exactly. You yeah. back then you had to shoot on short ends. Um and then processing was expensive. And then yeah. we had a whole problem with the, the lab, ruined some of our footage. We had to go back. We had to make an insurance claim, go back, reshoot something. Mm-hmm. So yeah, no, it wasn't easy to make a movie back then. Yeah. And then when you're talking about the distribution side of it or the exhibition side, you know, mm-hmm. you only wind up with like one or maybe two prints, you know, when you're going to festivals. Cause we went to about 33 festivals with it. Um, and then, but then once we realized we were starting to expand our distribution, we needed a couple extra prints. And so I think in the end, we wound up with four prints and, and prints were expensive. They were like $8,000 each or something. So it was a big investment just to make an individual print. And you could only make about seven or eight of them off your original negative before, it would start to degrade the negative. And then you would have to make, um, an inner positive and then an inner negative and, just how you know bigger films got released so but if you keep it under seven which we did we had four you know you could do it off the original negative without degrading it too much um yeah but it was still expensive anyway in the end we played at also about 33 cities uh we wound up um in our i think at the end we kind of expanded around the country we wound up in la playing at lemley's for 11 weeks wow Um, yeah which was pretty remarkable i mean it was like the midnight shows the morning shows it wasn't you know it wasn't like full week except for that first week but you know we had good reviews in the la times and la weekly and i stood in front of you know the theaters with a sandwich board and um, just passed out flyers to everyone you know and it really was everyone from tarantino and robert rodriguez to uh drew barrymore and all kinds of people would nice. come to movies and you just give them a flyer. So Yeah. Also, let me ask while while we're kind of on that subject, um, where where is Slam Dance in this whole picture? Because I know that Slam Dance uh to a certain degree was kind of a, a reaction to getting rejected by Sundance. If I if I read my Wikipedia correctly, which you know, Wikipedia is never you know, yeah. never capturing I a mean, perfect truth, but that's that's sort of that's mostly true. Um, It wasn't just a reaction to getting rejected. It was the recognition that if you didn't get in, you 
you were dead in the water. You wouldn't yeah. get distribution. You wouldn't get an agent. You wouldn't get a girlfriend. You wouldn't get <laughs> your next project made. I mean, none of that. And, and we had heard of a couple of filmmakers the year before in, um, so in January, so because we were looking at like January 95 to try to get in Sundance. January 94, there'd been a couple of filmmakers, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, and, and their partner, Jason McHugh, did a film called Cannibal the Musical, which was their thesis project out of University of Colorado. Um, didn't get in Sundance. They showed it at Sundance, like in a hotel room, you know, yeah. and they got a little bit of attention for that. I mean, this is way before they did South Park or, or anything like that. Um, there was a guy named James Marandino. Uh, he did a film called The Upstairs Neighbor. Same thing, did his own little renegade screening. So we had heard about guys like that. And uh, there was a group out in New York called Film Crash. They'd shown up a couple of years earlier and showed a bunch of shorts, kind of renegade style. So we took that idea and then, you know, just magnified it by or multiplied it by having a dozen features and a dozen shorts in, in January 95 all show up in, um, in Park City at the same time as Sundance. <laughs> and this coincided with... Um, you know, kind of a, a change in the indie film landscape, especially at Sundance, where uh, it, it, within around a year of that, Miramax had just become part of Disney, Fine Line had become part of Warner Brothers, Fox was just launching Fox Searchlight in January 95. Um, so it was part of the uh, the Hollywoodization of indie film. I mean, mm -hmm. this was the high point of Harvey and all his excesses, and Sundance really catered to him. Um and and Sundance just kind of went Hollywood. You know, they were like, woohoo, we're going to show films by bigger, with bigger budgets, second time directors, not first time directors anymore, with bigger stars and and films that already had distribution deals kind of in place. And they sort of and they didn't show as many films back then. They didn't have as many yeah. categories. So um, they kind of left behind the niche of the first time independent filmmakers, all of us who had been kind of influenced by that sort of first generation of Steven Soderbergh and with Sex, Life and Videotape and, and Rodriguez and Linkletter. And so we um, we realized that there was this niche that of the first time directors that they needed to be filled. And because of this was, you know, part of the cultural, you know, stream, we the press were really turning on Sundance that first year, too. Mm -hmm. And so we were kind of uh, I mean, it was the New York Times to call this a group of cheerful subversives. So <laughs> I've used that for my hey, book title. Now. I've heard that somewhere. Um, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but that's you know, we were kind of the darling of the press, you know, yeah. that first year. And, be, and a great little sidebar story because it was like, oh, yeah, this is what Sundance used to be like, you know, yeah. the real spirit of it. And, you know, and, and Sundance reacted by the second, by our second year, they had added uh, a section called Spectrum for first time directors, which huh. is now called Next. Um, but anyway, so they, you know, so I think we had a positive influence on them too. But, um, but after our first week of doing it, we realized, oh, okay, we're kind of filling a need here. We should, we should continue doing it. And so we have. And, and it's, you know, continued to fill that niche ever since. I mean, uh, mm -hmm. you know, what was the year of the founding? 94, 95, something in that range? 95. Yeah, 95. 95. Yeah. Because of that, we've shown the first films of everyone from Christopher Nolan, Bong Joon-ho, Ryan Johnson, the Russo brothers, uh, Sean Baker, the Safdie brothers, uh, the late Lynn Shelton, all, you know, all kinds of interesting people along the way. 
Yeah. So back to Omaha, you're showing at independent theaters kind of throughout the country. Are you just on the phone to them directly saying, hey, do you want to show this movie? How much of a process did you go through with them um, to sort of you know, get them to buy into showing this movie that's not coming from a, a distributor, uh, just coming directly from yeah. the filmmakers? Was that a difficult process? Well, once you figured out who the right person to talk to was, that mm -hmm. made it easier. So you know, there were at the time, and I think there still are, there's a lot of, you know, art house theaters relied on kind of regional bookers mm -hmm. um, that they would either hire or work with. Or, and so if you could figure out who the right booker was for the right theater or some theater chains had their own bookers, um, you know, some like Lemley's, you would just talk to Greg Lemley, you know, yeah. um, in LA. Um, but then there were also a few um commercial theaters like cinemark and amc that were kind of experimenting with showing you know like some indie films you mm -hmm. know if they had an eight plex and they're like well, why don't we show a couple indie films in one of the plexes you know and that's been a model that the multiplexes have have kind of been toying with for for years and kind of yeah. comes and goes in waves but yep. um you know so in some ways those were were somewhat easier to 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 book um, because, you know, once you had a connection with one, you could, you can make it with the others, but, you know, there was also, this was done in time when there was print advertising. So you had to mm -hmm. have, you know, all the elements ready for print ads, um, you know, to, to send to the local newspaper and the local film critic and, um, all that. So I actually was kind of running the whole distribution. Not a lot of people know this. Um, <laughs> they I, might I, now. I just been signed. Yeah, I had just been signed by UTA, big agency uh -huh. in Hollywood, and they had, and they weren't doing much else for me. So I thought, well, I may as well take advantage of them. So I started mailing all my because you had to mail a lot of stuff. Yeah. You had to mail press kits and you know VHS screeners out. It was a lot of mailing. So um, so I started working essentially out of their mail room about three or four days a week and using their phone lines because because uh, you know phone bills were really expensive then. Yeah. Um, Long distance, all, right? <laughs> yep. I was friends with all the receptionists Back. and all the assistants and everyone in the mailroom, and I'd bake them cookies and things like that. <laughs> and the most of the agents there thought I was the um, Xerox repair guy um, because I was constantly <laughs> making copies and fixing their copier for them. Anyway, eventually they said that I had a higher FedEx bill than any other client, including <laughs> Pamela Anderson and Jim Carrey put together. So they, they dumped me as a client. But by then I was pretty much done with the, with the distribution of the film. But we couldn't have done it if it hadn't been for that mailroom. Yeah. Uh, that really uh, supported our, the effort. Yeah. So I imagine that, that that process just added to your expenses, uh, you know, with all of that print and all of that uh, you know, the, the VHS tapes yeah. to send out and the postage costs, everything is just adding costs. Was this self-financed? Did you have independent financing? Uh, could you speak a little bit more it about that was, if you um, want to? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, it, it was a zero sum financing we, because yeah. we made money too. Okay. You know, keep in mind, we were making money at every theater and right. we were keeping it. It wasn't going to a distributor, you know, gotcha. I mean, it was, sometimes difficult to get the exhibitor to pay us the check, but it's that way with the studios too. So, um, so it was, it was, um, yeah, it was like a total zero sum. Like as we made, you know, we'd make money in one city and we uh, use it for the, buy the print that we needed for the next run or, or to, you know, pay for 
different things. So as I like to say, there's there's two ways to do self-distribution. And I think this hasn't changed at all, which is either you need a lot of time or you need a lot of money, but you don't necessarily need both. Hmm. So I had time. I wasn't doing anything else. Yeah. So um so I put that into 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 running the the whole distribution operation. Um and I think that's still largely the case. I don't think that that's changed either. And if you have money, then you hire people yeah, know, to do that. Yeah. I mean, so. I think that's uh that's really interesting uh that you kind of talk about it as this zero sum game. So you're 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 making money as you're spending the money. It's not at yeah. least in, in this particular case, you're not like outlaying all this money on prints and advertising ahead of time and then just hoping that you're going to recoup those costs later. You're sort of sort of putting it out as you go and and sort yeah. of seeing, does this work? Is this working? Are we making money doing this? Okay, yeah. we made some money doing this so that we can spend some more money. Um, and exactly. I, I think that that's like, you know, when I think about my own self-distribution strategy, if I ever do it, 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 it seems like it has to be that. It has to be like, you have to test the waters. You have to find out whether this is working and you have to be ready to pivot if it's not, rather than putting mm-hmm. all of your eggs in one basket and just praying uh, that it that it works out. Um, you know, so it, it and, yeah, it's interesting to hear you describe it that way. Go yeah. Ahead. And part of it is the, you know, whatever festival run you get, you know, that helps kind of inform like, okay, what marketing works, what doesn't work, what still images work, what posters work, you know, things like that. Um, But the interesting thing is that, uh, you know, the calculus is pretty much the same for studios and for independent distributors too. They don't make money theatrically Mm -hmm. um, for the most part. They're, um, you know, it was always kind of the you know, the lost leader before your VHS or your DVD sales or your cable sales or your streaming sales or, you know, whatever it happens to be now, you know, nobody makes money on theatrical except the the Coca-Cola distributor right. you know, uh, or the popcorn distributor because the theaters don't make money either. You know, everybody's struggling. Um, and that's always been the case for 125 years. So. Yeah. Do you think that's even more the case now? Now that so much more attention is paid to streaming, and obviously streaming didn't even exist back then. Uh, I haven't really researched this personally, but it just seems like fewer and fewer people are getting their movies in theaters these days, which is a little tragic. Uh, I love going to movies. I love seeing movies mm-hmm. in movie theaters. I hope that I will never have to stop doing that because there are no movie theaters, you know. Um, but it, it does seem like you know, I still probably just because of time constraints, I still probably watch 75% at least of what I watch at home. I just wonder, like, is is theatrical becoming even less and less of a way for films to make money? Uh, and I guess especially independent films um, who probably have little hope of getting theatrical anyway. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think things haven't changed that much. Um, hmm. I think, yeah, making money is not, not the main you know, will not be the main outcome of playing theatrical. Yeah. But there's lots of other important reasons to play theatrical, whether you're self-distributing or you have a distributor. The most, probably the big, the, the biggest thing is that you, without a theatrical release, it's very hard to get national press attention or, or reviews. Um, and, and they specifically tend to want, when is your New York release? They kind of, that's still a, a prejudice. Um, so if you don't have a theatrical release, it's very, very difficult to get 
reviews. Um, mm-hmm. You know, on my most recent film, 18 and a half, I mean, we got, um, you know, we wound up getting certified fresh on Rotten Tomato, uh, mm-hmm. which meant that we wound up with 45 reviews, Rotten Tomato eligible reviews, which means we probably had over 100 other reviews. Um, and that was largely because we had a theatrical release. It was mm-hmm. complete direct. 100% correlation between the two. And that hasn't changed. As much as film critics say, oh, we review streaming straight to video day and date releases. No, you don't. Hmm. Stop lying about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, okay. Whether you're the New York Times or IndieWire. I mean, we still couldn't get IndieWire to review the film, even with a th- <laughs> 60 city theatrical release. Yeah. And playing seven months in theaters and a 45 day window before streaming. So, um, you know, it's all. BS. But the point is, um, yeah, unless you're theatrical, you're not going to get significant press. Um, maybe if you've premiered at Sundance and you got press there, that's, that may be an exception. But as far as the distribution side goes, if you're straight to streaming, mm-hmm. even if you're a Netflix film and you're straight to streaming, you know, you you could be the woman king and you're yeah. not going to get a ton of press as or as much as you would have you know in in a theatrical environment it's kind of amazing to hear that i mean you would think somehow that the that the, that the world of reviews would have shifted a little bit um to the yeah, to our current reality uh and i guess that's maybe just a testament i don't know maybe it's a testament to just how things change so slowly sometimes when you have a sort of a entrenched industry that is built around a certain way of doing things, things in, in that environment are not apt to change all that quickly. Uh, I don't know, yeah. you know, uh, but why aren't there more people that are accepting the notion of reviewing things that are online when so much content is online, you know? So I just sure. want to correct, not correct myself, but just say the big ancillary reasons to do to do theatrical or number one press and publicity but number two also your ancillaries do better you know your you know whatever streaming you're doing or vod or avod or any of those things is going to do better if you've had a theatrical release um uh any airline sales are going to do better if you've had a theatrical release um international sales are going to be better if you had a theatrical release so everything kind of stems from that that's the main reason people have done it traditionally for you know a long time yeah and and why do you think that is exactly is it really just because go ahead for about at least 10 or 15 years there was a very specific reason for it which is that the the via video on demand um if it was in if they could say, if you or your distributor could say it was a theatrical release, it would go in the new releases section and they could demand a higher price point. So it could, ah. they could charge $3.99 instead of $1.99 or something like that. And it was a very specific, they had these very specific requirements. You had to play in 10 of the top um, 20 markets, for example, in the US. Um, they had these, you know, these kind of parameters. Now, those kind of specifics have a little bit gone out the window with the pandemic. Um, and they've but the theory is still prevalent that, mm-hmm. you know, c- c- the problem with that was that small distributors would then just, you know, four wall uh or or you know, or rent for a, a theater in a tiny suburban multiplex in Cleveland because that was one of the top. 20 markets or something like that didn't mean that people were actually going to see the film. So I don't know that that was a 
particularly sustainable or, or smart model in any case, but that was kind of the prevalent thing for, for a good 10 years or so up until the pandemic. And then with the pandemic, those were those specific requirements went out the window, but in general, it's still very much um, true that the, the more of a footprint you have in the theatrical and, and, and media space and, and press and reviews and all that, the higher price your sales agents can get for the film, mm -hmm. the the more traction you can get just every uh, at every stage, you know. So, uh, you know, kind of jumping around a little bit, uh, you know, I know that you have you have your new film out, 18 and a half. I know that you did not distribute that yourself or are not distributing it yourself, but I know that you are still kind of distributing it yourself. I mean, you're, you're doing a lot to push it. Uh, and, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, it's not just give it to my distributor and let them take care of it and all that stuff. So I definitely want to give you a chance to talk about that and maybe just introduce sure. the film for people who haven't seen it. Yeah, it's, what it's, it is, a, it's, it's a, uh, it's set in 1974. It's about a, um, a white house, um, transcriber who gets a hold of the missing 18 and a half minute gap in the Nixon water gate tapes tries to leak them to a reporter and they run afoul of hippies swingers and nefarious forces out to get them and um you know it's got a great cast willa fitzgerald is our lead john mcgarrow's in it richard kind vonnie curtis hall kathy Curtin, um uh, but also the voice of um of uh, the voices of ted ramey john crier and bruce campbell as nixon so um so that's been uh uh so you know, it's fun film, all kinds of adventures, shooting it before the pandemic and yeah. during the pandemic, you know, like that's a whole podcast in and of itself. But in any case, the point is when we finished the film, we started getting into festivals. We premiered it at the Woodstock Film Festival. Um, you know, this was in fall of 2021 where festivals were just starting to come back live again. But you kind of, we kind of played the, somewhat by design somewhat by accident we wound up playing um kind of in the troughs of the of the covid variants so mm. you know the between delta and omicron yep. you know we played 10 festivals like really intensely you know in fall of 21 you know back to back and and then again after omicron during the spring between omicron and world war three or, or the ba2 you know we we played another 10 festivals or so and um so we were able to make the most of what was a recovering festival circuit, you know, and, and, and play live where we could play drive-ins where we could, we tried to avoid the virtual festivals, um, and, and were largely successful in that. Um, I mean, a lot of festivals were hybrid, but still, uh, anyway, the point is, is we tried to get distribution, you know, as much yeah. as everyone does. And, um, uh, and we had a great sales rep helping us, a domestic sales rep named uh, Glenn Reynolds at Circus Road, um, who's great. I recommend him to everyone. Um, and he's an old friend of mine. We've worked together a lot over the years. So Glenn was working with us and we were trying to find a domestic distributor first. That's kind of for most American indie films. That's kind of what you aim for first. Mm -hmm. But um, but simultaneously, we I was also looking at international sales agents or sales companies to sell the international rights. And in the end, what happened was we found a international sales company um, based in the UK called 101 Films um, that offered us, with much to our surprise and, and glee, <laughs> um, uh, that they were going to do the US 
they would, in addition to taking on international rights, they were also going to do the U.S. video on demand and TV sales and and basically everything except theatrical um, for the most part uh, in the U.S. As, as well as Canada. In addition to the U.K. doing direct distribution in the U.K. and Ireland and then, and then international sales. And they were going to give us a, a much more sizable minimum guarantee or, or advance, you know, uh, than any of the domestic companies that we were talking to at that point. So we took that deal. And the interesting thing about it, and they've been great, great to work with. The interesting thing about it is we were like, okay, well then that means we'll just do our own theatrical self-distribution in the U S and we were planning on doing that. And just in doing due diligence, a lot of people were saying, oh, maybe you should call a booker. So there's, as a filmmaker, you can hire a booker. Um, which a lot of people do. And, um, but for the most part, those are people, those are filmmakers who haven't done self-distribution before. Mm -hmm. I've done it before. So Mm -hmm. I wasn't really that excited to spend more money on on someone who would make the same phone calls that I would make. Yeah. Is Um, that generally just a fat, a flat fee that you pay them? Uh, So regardless of your return, you're paying that money. Exactly. So you, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm kind of driving at in general is there is a range of, of things between self-distribution and complete full distribution there. There's a whole spectrum of, of, places where and, and and ways you can go so you can yeah do what i did on my first film where you're fully self-distributing the film at least theatrically but then nowadays if you want to do self-distribution you can yeah you can do it 100 your own you're calling the theaters you're calling the regional bookers yourself um and you're doing you know you're doing every you know fulfilling doing deliverables making the dcp yourself off your computer do all that or some or there's there's another sort of mid-level where you there are some distribution companies like bamarama roadside attraction others smaller bigger ones that are considered service companies, or or sometimes they are. They sometimes they do their other films other ways. But in other words, you can hire a distributor. You know, mm-hmm. you may pay them twenty thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars, and depending on your film and your investors, you may have that money. <laughs> you know, everyone's different. So, um, but then they, you know, for again for for that flat fee, they'll distribute your film, and your film will get out there. Um, and then there's this kind of other hybrid, which is that uh, you hire a booker, and that may be for five thousand dollars or seven thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, something like that. And they will they will book your film into you know art house cinemas around the country. And yeah, and if you don't have any connections or lists or anything like that or time, um, and that but you may have some money, that makes a lot of sense for people. Anyway, in our case. Uh, we kind of stumbled into a, a, yeah. a real distributor, a company called Adventure Entertainment, that was kind of new to narrative films. They had done a lot of like um, uh, like Red Bull documentary, you know, special screenings, like extreme sports things. That's why they're called Adventure mm. Entertainment. Um, but they had, over the pandemic, they had just started to do a couple uh, narrative films and they offered to do um, just flat distribution for us. In other words, we wouldn't pay them any money up front. In mm-hmm. fact, they would, in theory, uh, pay us a small percentage if if they made back 
you know, their expenses and, and, and a small percentage of the box office. And we were like, well, in our case, that made a lot of sense, you know, because we, and they were just doing theatrical, not video on demand, not any other ancillaries, just theatrical. And then non, and then it, it was a little more, I don't know if I can get too far yeah. into the weeds. With that. Right. But for the most part, just theatrical. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and, and there was a guy named Henry out of Denver, but it's a company owned in Australia and they're great, like really super nice to work with and, and came well recommended by friends who had worked with them. Uh, Tom Putnam's film, the, the dark divide. Tom usually hates everyone. So <laughs> if he liked them, I was like, oh, well that, okay. That speaks very well of them. Uh, so they came on board and what was interesting was, was kind of working with now two completely different companies um, that were you know, mostly uh, on board with the same vision for our distribution. We were all kind of timing it a little bit towards the 50th anniversary of Watergate, which was last mm -hmm. June. But the nice thing about Watergate is it was a two and a half year scandal. So you can kind of pick any date as your anniversary. <laughs> anyway, so we we worked together. We had a lot of conference calls and, and, and Zooms and things like that. And I went to England because I was there for the Manchester Film Festival. And I met with the guy, the, the team in, in London and their publicists. This is the real secret was that mm -hmm. both companies hired publicists. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, in fact, 101 hired a UK publicist and a, a US publicist for the VOD release. And, and then adventure hired a publicist and it was, and, and that was someone I knew pretty well. And then we actually added on and we hired our own publicist kind of based out of New York. Cause we knew that was kind of the one area that wasn't really being covered that well. So we just, we put a little bit of money into that and then we coordinated all the efforts and, and it was great because everybody had their own contacts, their own lists, their own slight variations on timelines um, you know, the UK release was was like a month after the US release, the VOD release in the US was about a month later. So um, so it was like a concerted team effort, you know, hitting the press for, um, you know, for about two or three, you know, or four solid months. Um, mm -hmm. And that really made a huge difference. Um, and then meanwhile, Henry was booking the film. Um, and in the end, we wound up getting, you know, a 60 city theatrical release, which more more interestingly, I think lasted seven months. It wow. wasn't just 60 cities in that first week and, oh, you can't go to them all. No, we stretched it out on purpose right. and so that we could physically have someone almost at every screening in, in every city, you know, whether it was me or my writing producing partner, Daniel Moya, or producer Terry Keefe or the cinematographer or Kickstarter backers, you know, yeah. or, or um, Seed and Spark backers rather. Uh, you know, that we had in every city, you know, they yeah. would go to screenings and host Q and A's and that kind of thing. So if you don't mind, I might, might stop you there and just, uh, drill into that a little bit. Um, yeah. so, uh, you know, for, for people that are looking at self-distribution, um, do you think that that, do you think that there's value in booking screenings and then traveling to as many of these screenings as you can get to? Do you think that that, you know, in terms of pure financials, does, does that, pay does that does that result <laughs> well, in a return on your investment you well the trick is is to decentralize yourself mm -hmm. um like i said it wasn't always me flying to places it was people that we had right. already in those places or my right. executive producer tal gannison hosted a big premiere in detroit michigan none of us flew there he was just there you know so and it was great. So, um, but I think, uh, and this is something I've written about and talked about a little bit, is that 
you know, especially post-pandemic, when theaters desperately are trying to get people off their couches and stop watching Netflix, Mm -hmm. they need to become, and a lot of them have become sort of more like film festivals. And likewise, festivals are becoming more like theaters. A lot of festivals are paying, are are doing revenue sharing, which Mm -hmm. they weren't doing before the pandemic. Um, So they're becoming more like exhibitors. Also, a lot of festivals are now doing year-round screening series, like Seattle Film Festival, Florida Film Festival. Some of them have been doing it for 30 years, but some of them have just started either right before or during the pandemic. So some of our theatrical bookings were really sort of with festivals, like Mm -hmm. Seattle Film Festival, Florida Film Festival. Did we play at the festival or did we play at their year-round screening? Does it matter? You know, it yeah. kind of doesn't. You know? The the nice thing is if it's at their year-round screening, someone, you know, there's money changing hands. Um, but likewise, you know, art house theaters are recognizing that they need to eventize screenings, which is to say, invite filmmakers in, um, uh, sometimes pay for their travel, by the way, mm-hmm. which not not very many of them do that, but a few do and they do it well host q and a's but even if they can't do it in person you can they're all set up to do zooms now and everybody mm. both cast and, and crew we're all we know how to do this now in a way that three years ago it was oh so how do i set up skype and it was you know it was a little bit more um theaters weren't quite accustomed to that now there's no excuse to not have some sort of live intro or q a i mean tom cruise figured that out with with his intros to to yeah. top gun like I think that's a great, that's a great point. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just, if there's anything that positive that came out of the pandemic, it's that everybody now knows how to use Zoom and, and can use that tool. Filmmakers can use that tool in ways that I think are much more effective than they would have been five years ago um, to establish a presence for themselves with their film, whatever, you know, whatever that is, whether it's at screenings or. Yeah. And, you know, and then some theaters will do pre-recorded you know, sure. intros or Q and A's and and that sort of thing too, but that's how you can afford to be in sixty places at once when you can't afford to actually be in sixty yeah, places at once. That makes sense. So the other key thing to think about is we've we've also kind of split our rights up um, in other ways too. So for example, you know, traditionally you would just give your airline rights would be kind of buried into a contract as, as ancillary rights. Well, I wrote a big article about airline rights in filmmaker magazine about five years ago. So I kind of know a little bit more than most people and know some of those contacts. So in our case, that was actually our first deal we made Mm. was we did a deal with a company called gate 23 strictly for airline rights, international and US airline rights. Um, And so, and we carved that out of all the other contracts. Um, And so because of that, our film is now currently playing on JetBlue, Virgin Atlantic, Singapore Air, Air New Zealand, Emirates, and Qatar. And and that will wind up being our single biggest source of, of revenue for the film. So um, that is that was the most lucrative thing we ever could have done, and and it it's already paid off. That's um, terrific. And not for nothing, a lot of people are seeing the film that way, in ways that they wouldn't, because you have a captive audience. You know? yeah. Um, but we also, you know, physical media was something that wasn't covered by the other distributors, so we made a separate DVD deal. And I'm literally I'm staring at my um, premiere file because I'm cutting the f- DVD featurette right now, which is going to be longer than the film. Um, but also educational rights is another thing that we're that we kind of carved out for ourselves. Mm. So th- the point is, 
in that range of from full on self distribution to full on oh you got to deal with a twenty four um there are all these other options and, and and versions of things and 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 we found on eighteen and a half we kind of found a, a good happy mix right in the middle where we're working with distributors and we're getting as much out of them as they're getting out of us and and it's and it's working so far. Everyone's yeah. you know still talking to each other. Um, it sounds like you have you have a terrific relationship with these distributors that you have partnered with. Yeah, which yeah. isn't which doesn't believe me doesn't always happen. I mean, yeah. on every one of my films, there has been at least one distributor that has gone bankrupt. Mm. So wow. that will happen. Yeah, and, and which is part of the reason why splitting the rights, whether it's just between two a domestic and international, or you know airline and domestic, or however you're splitting those rights, is a good idea. Because if one thing fails, uh, which it will, I mean, they may go bankrupt the first year, they may go bankrupt the tenth year out of a twelve year contract, but they will go. Someone will go bankrupt, you know. And that's if you're, and that's if they don't sue you first, you know, or you sue them first, you know. Bankruptcy is like the easiest of those things, but yeah. it's a pain. And I mean, on my last film, Bernard and Huey, we had a well-respected UK foreign sales company. They went bankrupt, owing us fifty thousand know? dollars. Did you ever see that? Me. Never saw it. Nope. Yeah, uh, we no. saw we, they they went. We wound up getting you know pennies on the dollar. We got like eight hundred dollars out of it. Yeah, and I mean, I think Yay. that that yeah, I think that that um, you know speaks a little bit to what this podcast will will be about, which is you know it's not just about self distributing, but it's about analyzing whether distributing through a traditional distributor is even worth it in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, I yeah. think in your case, it's worth it. You've you've developed a good relationship, but I've heard a lot of stories about filmmakers that will partner with distributors and the filmmakers get completely screwed in that process. The they, trick is, are you getting more out of them than yeah. they're getting out of you? And and, right. like, and, it, and it's not always as simple as dollars and cents. Like I said, the, the biggest benefit we got out of our team of distributors was, was the fact that they were hiring publicists or they had in-house publicists. Mm -hmm. And and we work really well with them. And, and that was at their expense, right? Yeah, uh, and and but were they so. taking it? You know, because as, as I understand it, the relationship that most filmmakers have with with distributors is that distributors have a certain marketing budget um, that they are going to recoup their costs one hundred percent on before you see a penny, right? Oh so, yeah. And that's Which that's is the why way I always say like you should get as much money up front as you can. Yeah. Like some people get obsessed about, oh, should I, should I get more of a percentage or less of a percentage on the back end? I was like, forget about the back end. You're not going to see that. Hmm. What are you getting? What's your advance? What's your minimum guarantee? Get as much as you can because you never know. They may be the great, the greatest people in the world, but if they go bankrupt in a year, there is yeah. no back end. You know, <laughs> if they run up their expenses, there is no back end. Like there's a million reasons you're not going to see anything on the back. So get what you can up front or get a commitment that they're going to spend money on marketing or publicity or. You know, I've heard, I've heard a lot of reference to making sure that there's a cap on their marketing budget as well uh, so that they can't just continue to. Build. But there is a counter argument to that, which is that if you, if the cap is so low that that does not incentivize them to spend any money on the marketing. Mm -hmm. So it depends exactly on what your goals are with the film. I mean, I had on my last film, we had, uh, which was called Bernard and Huey, we sort of made a calculated decision uh, with our domestic distributor to have a, a, a high cap because we knew that that would incentivize them to spend money. And in fact, that did kind of play out. They did spend money on a pretty high-priced publicist, 
whether they were a good publicist or not is another matter, but they definitely, they spent money, you know, yeah. whether they spent it wisely, whether they spent it well, whether we would have spent it the same way as somewhat immaterial. Like the point is they spent money on the film. Okay. That's yeah. better than not spending money on the film in some cases. So it's not as simple as just saying, Oh, put a cap on it because it, it, it depends on your situation. And that's the biggest question is when you are getting ready for distribution, um, you know, with whatever film you have, is you've got to ask yourself, what are your priorities? That's mm -hmm. the most important thing is to, is to figure out, like, is it money? Which for a lot of people, that's the assumption, but it's not always. Is it career? Is it press? Is it reviews? Is it getting your next film made? Is it getting an agent? You know, because you, every decision you make will be guided by those priorities, whatever they are. Yeah, I think that's an, an absolutely terrific point and and something people need to pay very close attention to because you're when you get out there you're faced with real decisions and those decisions need to be informed by something and sometimes it can be pretty hard to make those decisions I think. And so if you kind of go back and look at your priorities uh you know remind yourself what are my priority priorities what am I looking at that might you know help you help you through or, those decisions. Or is it just so, you know or is it do you want to connect with audiences yeah. as much as you yeah. want eyeballs do you want live right. eyeballs do you want virtual right. eyeballs? you know whatever right. it is yeah. yeah so going back to the to the first time filmmaker that's facing their their very first project and distributing their very first film what kind of advice could you give them i know that's a very general question but what kind of advice would you offer to a first time filmmaker who's trying to make sense of this landscape and trying to decide do i risk going through a potentially predatory distributor losing everything, not getting any money back, or do I go out there and try to make something of my film where I can make all of the money back myself instead of splitting it with somebody? Uh, any any words of wisdom to offer in, in terms of a filmmaker who's kind of facing that decision? Well, don't make it about money. You'll never win. <laughs> You know, yeah. um, I mean, let's put it this way, even on 18 and a half, after doing this for 25 or 30 years, I made more money writing articles for Variety about the making of the film than I did making the film. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's fine. You know, it's okay. I've kind of figured out my own side hustles. Yeah. As soon as you, as soon as you take money out of the incentive and out of the equation, that frees you up to both creatively be more creative and artistic, and, but also more creative in how you're connecting with audiences. Um, if you're just doing it for money, you're in the wrong business to begin with because you won't make money. Nobody does, unless you sell popcorn. And even then, that <laughs> took a hit. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, given given that, and and please feel free to share as much or as little as you want to about this question, but did, did you personally invest in your film? Uh, no. you, like your own money. Okay, so no. this is all investor money. Well, so investors or do and donors and backers. So about two thirds of our budget was was equity investors. Yeah, but about a third came from donations and and crowdfunding. You know, like I said, Seed and Spark, but we also had a fiscal sponsor with the film collaborative, so people could donate money and get a tax write-off. Um, so about a third of it came from that. I, on all my films, you know, most of the money comes from uh, investors. And do your investors make their money back? No. I mean, they no. They'll, yeah. they'll, on this film, they, when all said and done, they'll probably make about half their money back, which, hmm. and everyone will be very happy with that because then none, <laughs> none of them, I made sure none of them did it because they thought they were going to make money. Okay. Um, you know, I make sure to, 
be very transparent with my investors about about you know the odds of making money um and i've had you know one of my films between us also they made about half their money back or a third of their money back hmm. so and that's you know that's a success <laughs> that's a successful I, film. i mean for them i guess it has to be it's not just not about the money for you the filmmaker it's not about the money even for your investors it sounds like yeah uh, it shouldn't be so why are they is, investing just to, gonna, you know, yeah. indulge me if you will uh, why no, are they investing yeah, no, well, you got to read the book about that. But, um, <laughs> I will. I promise I will. available everywhere. It's in my list. Sold. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, they're doing it for other reasons for, mm -hmm. for uh, you know, to support the arts, for ego, for product placement, for to get a credit. It's everyone's a little different uh, yeah. because they're friends with you. If they like the actors, they want to be associated with them, you know, all kinds of different reasons um and you just have to find the right reason it's going to appeal yeah. to the right person which is not easy um if believe me if it was easy everyone would be doing it but um but th there are ways to find those people you just but yeah if if they're doing it because that you you've told them they're going to make money then first of all they're not going to make money and they're going to break your kneecaps okay and they're not going to invest in you or anyone else in the future so you know, you just have to be brutally honest with them saying, are you going to make your money back? Nope. <laughs> you make right. any of it? Probably not. Nope. <laughs> yeah. And that, but the, yeah. And then just hope that they have money to burn and they want to burn it on you instead yeah. of, you know, something else. Well, I appreciate your brutal honesty. Yeah. All right. Well, right we are past the hour point uh you've you've ha had some some great things to say i'm sure people will get a lot out of your you know wealth of knowledge Thank about you, this huh? this topic yeah. I, I will of course give you the chance to um let people know where they can find you if they if they want to get in touch uh well if i owe them money don't find <laughs> me, that's but um but other assuming otherwise yeah i mean i'm on i'm i'm one of the last people on twitter still <laughs> And, uh, I'm still on there. Uh, I'm I'm hanging in. Yeah, no, I know, right? <laughs> uh, Instagram and Facebook and uh, TikTok sometimes. Um, and then my website is danmervish.com. And then we also have a website for 18andahalfmovie.com. Or go to Amazon and just check out um, the Cheerful Subversive's Guide to Independent Filmmaking, uh, which is available in print or audiobook or ebook. So, yeah. But, Terrific. Uh, and come check out come check out my films because that's really what it's all about. They, so, they are. I I also, uh, by the way, watched Bernard Bernard and Huey. So it's not just eight minutes. Oh, and a half thanks, man. Seen, yeah, so well, that, I hope you liked it. Uh, yeah. yeah. I I mean, I I really love your your style. Uh, you know, you have this sort of like. Thanks for thinking. I have a style. That's... You do. Oh, yeah. I, undoubtedly. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't see how anybody okay, could say you don't. So, uh, yeah, okay, and, and enjoyed both Thank of those you. films quite a bit. So, yeah. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, well, thanks, Dan. All right. Thank you, Colin. Yep. And best of luck with the uh, with the podcast. It's a truly an honor to be on the inaugural one. All right. Well, that's all for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please rate and or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Uh, then spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell everyone you know, because I'm just starting out, so I can use all the help I can get to grow the show and reach a wider audience of independent filmmakers and others who just want to try to understand this uh, crazy, crazy world of independent film distribution. Also, uh, I would love to hear your feedback, positive, negative, whatever. Comments, questions, suggestions, send them my way. Uh, if you have guests in mind whose experiences you want to hear about, let me know, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. 
if you know people who have experience with self or creative distribution, please put me in touch. I'm on Twitter at JustScreenIt. My Instagram is JustScreenItPodcast. Or you can just email me at JustScreenIt at DarkRosePictures.com. Uh, by the way, darkrosepictures.com is my in-progress website for my feature and my other projects, uh, but it's not really up just yet, uh, just a coming soon banner right now, but the full site is coming very, very soon uh, if you want to follow my work. Anyway, that is truly all for now. I have lots more great guests lined up in the coming weeks. I'll be putting an episode up once or twice a week for the foreseeable future, so stay tuned and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.